I'm glad to have you all gathered this Sabbath, or if you're watching this on uh, Thursday or Friday or Monday or Tuesday sometime next week or in the weeks ahead, I hope that this is a blessing to you as well. Thank you, Pastor Marlene, for reminding us that uh, everything, everything that has breath can praise the Lord. Um, This morning, I'm going to talk to you about who lost Thanksgiving. Who lost Thanksgiving? I don't know how you feel about losing things. I hate losing things. Particularly my keys, my wallet. My wallet is also my phone, so I don't have that third item to worry about. But if I lose that, I lose both. But if I can't find my keys or I can't find my wallet, I am just kind of thrown by the whole thing. It's a little disorientating, disorienting when I'm when I'm uh, when I've lost them. I can't find my keys, and I will literally just wander the house looking for these things, and I just don't have a sense of peace until I find them, even if I don't need them. If I'm not leaving, if not, I don't need to get in the car, whatever, if I just realize I don't have my wallet, I don't know where my keys are, I'll start wandering around the house. Sometimes I'll hand my keys off to someone who's riding with me to open the door, and they'll lay them down someplace where I haven't lain them or I don't normally lay them, and I will search the house. Where are my keys? Where are those things? Because it just disorients me when I've lost them. I believe that it is disorienting to your spiritual life to lose thanksgiving. I believe that it is disorienting to your spiritual life to lose the practice of giving thanks. I'm not talking about the holiday. The holiday is just a good excuse to talk about it. I'm talking about the practice of giving thanks. When we get out of the practice of giving thanks. It's disorienting to our lives. I want to remind you of the, the premise of the whole book of James. If you get struggling with the book of James, I know many of you are reading through the Bible at this time of year. You're getting there toward the end. You maybe have been reading the book of James. <coughs> Remember that the, the, the primary point of the book of James is in this one verse. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. If you look at everything else in the book under that umbrella, it'll make a lot more sense. It'll, it'll pull the whole thing together for you. But for us, that is an anchor text. Today I got to, to celebrate with my family the, the, the arrival of two more members of our family. And today we were able to place them before the Lord and say, Lord, these are actually your children. How, how awesome is that? But to be reminded... That every good thing comes from God. Every good thing comes from God. Will anchor your life. Storms blow. If you know the good things are from God, it will anchor your life. If you have things you can remember to be thankful for in difficult times, it will anchor your life. Thankfulness and an orientation toward understanding that God is the one who gives every good thing will anchor your life. So I want to talk about this this morning in a particular passage. I wanted to, if you're looking for this, we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 3. I believe I've written John on the screen. It's actually Mark chapter 3, verses 19 to 30. Mark chapter 3, verses 19 to 30. If you're looking for this verse in John, you won't find it. You're going to find Nicodemus in the book of John. But here we are in in Mark chapter 3. And he went into the house. The he in this case is Jesus. He's gone into the house, probably Peter's house. He's gone inside Peter's house, most likely in this moment. The multitude came together again, again because this keeps happening to him. 
And just earlier in this verse, we had a multitude so big that he tells the disciples to have a boat ready unless the group gets so big they start crushing him or start even pushing him into the water. And so Jesus has to escape to a boat because the crowds get so big. Now again in the house, the crowd is getting that big. A multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. So stop and think about it. Have you ever been so busy you didn't get a chance to eat? Have you ever been surrounded by people, busied by people so much that you don't get a chance to eat? That's the situation here. They are so busy with people that they haven't had a chance to eat. So here's this, here's this, this pattern in Jesus' life. He, these crowds gather. They busy him and the disciples. In this case, they get into a house. The house is probably stuffy with people's breath. It's probably overheated with the body heat of other of the people that are gathered in there. First century people weren't regular bathers, so <laughs> there's probably a lot of reasons you don't want to be jammed into this house. But here they are with a giant multitude of people, and it's so busy. They haven't had an opportunity to take a break and eat. So busy doing the work of God that they haven't had a chance to eat. But when his own, we'll find out later his mother and his brothers have shown up. When his own heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. So think intervention. Think intervention. They're going to intervene with Jesus. They went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. He's lost his head. He's gone. He's given it up. He's lost his mind. So his own family thinks Jesus has gone around the bend. So stop for just a second before we condemn them too wholeheartedly. Remember what Jesus had and what Jesus has now. Jesus had a good job. He had been a carpenter his whole life. His family's in the carpentry business. He's, the, uh, he's the, in this family a very important member of that business. And he leaves that to become an itinerant preacher who's dependent on other people for his, his daily uh, needs, for his daily care. Jesus went from being a guy with a regular steady job to a guy who's wandering the country depending on other people for his, for his simple basic needs. Second, Jesus is saying things that are ticking off both the Romans and the leaders of the church. He's making everyone around him angry and a little frightened. You don't want to make the government afraid of you. You don't want to make the church afraid of you. You don't want to come up against these, these people. These people are extremely powerful in Jesus' time. And his whole family saying, that's not a good idea, man. You've given up a good job, and now you're taking off the government. Then Jesus, in this chapter, reveals his hand on who his team is. We just have seen it. If you've read the chapter, it's just before this. He gives us a whole list of these wonderful gentlemen that he's come up with. People of great, great standing in the community and great repute, right? We've got four fishermen. We've got a tax collector who's really sold out to the Romans. And just to balance out this crazy crowd... We have a zealot who wants to kill the Romans included in this whole mess. You've got a whole group of guys, mostly blue-collar, not very educated, not even couth. They're the uncouth. Can you be couth? It's one of those words I wonder about. His family sees him giving up a good job, going against the government, and then gathering this bunch of yahoos together as his inner circle. And they've come to get him because they think he's lost it. So first group I want to tell you about, first group we're going to come back and talk about in a minute, are those who underestimate Jesus. 
Those who underestimate Jesus lose grip on thanksgiving. Here's the second group. This is the scribes, leaders of the church, people in charge of teaching the law. The scribes who have come down from Jerusalem said, he has beals above. In other words, he's, a, he's inhabited by the devil. The spirit in him, in him is demonic. He's actually demonically behaving in his access to demons. Now stop for a second here as well. In the previous chapters, we have seen Jesus cast demons out already. And now we're here in this moment, the, the people who have come down to watch this giant crowd gathered around Jesus, to hear him preach, says, he's got a demon. He's doing this work. He is able to do this because he's in league with the devil. By the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. This is a whole different level of no good. You want to lose Thanksgiving? You want to lose a reason to be thankful? Start attributing the things of God to Satan. This is all the way around in a different direction. This is horribly difficult, horrible to get back from. The scribes who come down from Jesus has, are a group of people who think they're smarter. They think they understand things better. They become cynical about the things of God. These people are far from God. So he called them to himself. So imagine these two groups. His family's stuck outside. They're not even able to get in through the crowd. But imagine this group he's in. And he knows what these Pharisees are saying, these scribes are saying. He says, okay, you guys, come in. Can you imagine what the whole group thinks when that happens? You ever had the teacher single out somebody in your class? I used to, I used to teach a few classes. I loved nothing more than to go up to the kid who was being a smart aleck and stand really close to him at his desk and look at him. Particularly if he wasn't paying attention. If he was goofing around, talking to the kids around him, I would wait till he wasn't paying attention. I'd walk up and stand right next to him and wait silently for him to stop. And then this poor, unfortunate child would look up and realize I was standing there. And the panicked look on his face was worth the rest of the day. It also usually got him to be quiet. Jesus calls out these rebellious voices from the crowd and he calls them to himself. He says to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? You're saying that what I'm doing is by the power and authority of the devil. How can the devil cast out the devil? That doesn't make sense. It's not logical. A, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It's impossible for a kingdom at, in, a, in a civil war to be able to risk, risk <clears throat> be able to to push off, I can't even get the word that's coming out, that's trying to come out of my mouth. That's what happens when you don't preach a couple weeks. They can't even resist any other comers. If they're in a bitter civil war, they can't resist those who are attacking them. A house divided against itself, that house cannot stand. He gets it home now, he brings it into the personal family. He brings it into your own home. A house divided against itself, where family is fighting, where children are fighting, where parents are fighting. When that conflict is going on, that family is weakened and destroyed and they no longer can stand against things that are coming. He then goes on. If Satan has risen up against Satan himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it is his end. If Satan is fighting amongst himself with his own inner, inner circle, he's done for. No one can enter a strong man's house 
and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. I want to stop for a second here because there's an implication given that we never talk about. Do you realize the Bible is saying that Jesus has gone right into Satan's house, bound him, plundered his goods, kicked his little demons out? He says that he is the strong man. He's the one who's able to overcome the authority of Satan. I, I am the strong man. I go into this strong man's house. I bind him. I plunder his stuff and I throw him out. Jesus is declaring himself more powerful than the devil and all of us should be glad for that. Then comes this, this moment. This moment that's so important that this is the first use of the word amen in the book. This is the first time Mark will use the word. It gets used in the Bible several times. It almost always gets translated in some other way, or it gets, it looks weird when somebody puts amen at the beginning of a sentence, because we're used to amen, amen being at the end, right? And in Judaism, that would be the case. In first century Judaism, you would say amen when you're trying to say, I agree with that. Somebody would say something, and just like here, you would say amen when you want to support that idea. Somebody says, God is good. You say amen. They say, that means I'm in agreement with the fact that God is good. Jesus is starting the sentence with amen. What amen means in this first century, in the first century context is truly, or I'm with you, I believe that. So Jesus starts out by saying truly, or assuredly, or I believe this. But he's saying it with that response at the beginning. The way you should respond to this is to agree with this. So when Mark puts it here, he, he's telling us, look what Jesus did. He's calling this sentence out for us to really pay attention to. And I love it because look what it says. I say to you, you should believe this assuredly. I'm telling you, don't let this get by you. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. All. If you're following in your Bible, would you underline all? All sins will be forgiven the sons of men. First century language, that includes daughters. Ladies, you should be glad for that too. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Now right now, inside of your head, you need to be going, that's a good deal. Because that's what assuredly means. He's saying, you guys don't understand. The truth that I'm about to tell you is something you should take in. You should make a rock. You should stand on it. You should commit yourself to it. You should understand it completely in your whole heart. All sins of men can be forgiven and all blasphemies stricken from the record. Every human being on the planet could be forgiven no matter what they have done. And no matter what they have done. Said. Sometimes we say things that come out of our head or out of our mouth that we weren't really sure, but then they're there and you can't unsay them. Jesus says, I'll reel those in for you. Even the blasphemies that have come out of your mouth, all of them, except this one. There is one that doesn't work. Except for the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. which never has forgiveness. This does not mean 
that you can use curse words. You can take the name of God in vain, but if you use the name of the Holy Spirit in vain, God is not going to forgive you. This is talking about the economy of God's heart. The heart that he's trying to implant in you, the heart that he's trying to implant in me. He says, if your heart becomes so twisted that you make the things of God to be the things of the devil, you've stepped over the line. And until that gets reversed by you, it can't be forgiven by me. Now you're on your own with something that's very hard to deal with. If you are not forgiven of this, you're subject to eternal condemnation. He said this because they said that he, Jesus, had an unclean spirit and was doing the works of God by the power of the devil. Do you see the problem? Does it make sense to you? Do you understand? This is one of those passages that I hear about as a pastor from people on a fairly regular basis, probably at least once a year. Somebody will come to me and they'll say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. And I'll say, well, why do you think that? Well, because I did this, or I did that, or I said this, or I said that. And I'm worried that I've lost my eternal life. The story in the scripture says that all sins and blasphemies of mankind might be forgiven. And the fact that you're worried about losing your eternal life says the Holy Spirit is still active in your life calling you to God. And if the Holy Spirit is still active in your life calling you to God, you've not shut the door on the Holy Spirit. That's what this is about. I want to pick it up here. And I want to talk about these two groups. The two groups who missed the Thanksgiving. One, those who underestimated Jesus. His family. Interesting. And the other group, those who were too cynical to see who he was. Too cynical to see who he was. First, those who underestimated Jesus. I'm going to take a minute with this. Because I think this is a common thing in church. I think churches do this. I think people who, who live in, uh, in relationship with God, those who are the family of God, can easily get into the habit of underestimating Him. You know, you know how it is. If you've been a Christian for very long, you know what it was like when you first became a Christian. When you first became a follower of Jesus, you said, Yay, God, in every chance you got. Hey, this great thing happened to me today. Yay, God. Hey, this little thing ha- happened to me today. Yay, God. This, this thing that I'm not sure about happening to me today, yay God. You just kept saying, yay God, yay God, yay God, because God was in your life, and you thought about it all the time. God did good things for me. Yay God. God is watching over me. Yay God. You read something in the Bible that was cool. You said, yay God. And you realized, without even having read the text in that very new, early life of your spiritual walk, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And you were just doing it all the time. Because in your Holy Spirit-connected moment, you realize that when good things are happening, God was in charge. And you realize God's in charge of everything. And if God is in charge of everything, then I said, yay, God, for everything. And you had this simple, direct connection in your faith where you loved God, He loved you, good things happened, you said thanks. Good things happened, you said thanks. Bad things happened, you said thanks. Yeah, I said bad. Because you realize God is so big. 
God is so glorious. God is so all, all authoritative that even those things will be worked out for your good. You read that in Romans chapter 8. You're like, wow. It's one of those things where you stopped, you read your Bible and went, yay, God. I love being around folks who are new to their faith. I love the rest of you too, but man, it's so exhilarating to be around people who are new to their faith. The rest of you, you kind of go, yay, God. Hey, Romans 8, 28 again. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Good deal, God. Thanks. And your whole spirit sort of descends into the thought that the blessings of God... Listen, you descend into the thought that the blessings of God can be taken for granted. We descend after a while. We become so accustomed to good things coming our way that we simply descend into the idea that this is normal. We forget that we live in the armpit of the universe. We forget that sin and death reigns here. We forget that people all around us are just as messed up and broken as we are. We forget that if we take a breath, it's a gift from God. We forget if our eyes open up in the morning, it's a gift from God. And we wander off the path away from God. We, we wiggle back and forth in our relationship, in and out and in and out and in and out. And pretty soon we descend into the idea that taking a breath is on me. Opening my eyes is on me. Hey, maybe those guys are right about me climbing out of the primordial slime. Maybe I, maybe God's not as a, I don't know. And we go from arriving in our faith in a yea God posture to standing in our faith in a, I suppose there's a God. Which, by the way, is the door out of faith. It's the exit door. You see, those who had come to rescue Jesus from himself had good reasons in an earthly way of thinking. He left a good job. Right there in Nazareth, he had had good things going on. He had a future. He had security. He, He got sideways of the leadership and the rulers of the people, and now he might get in a lot of trouble if he keeps this up. And now he's picked 12 apostles who are a bunch of losers, no question about it. Anybody and everybody would admit it. It's pretty clear he's out of his mind. And they begin to underestimate who they're dealing with. They forget that if Jesus has walked away from a job in Nazareth, he's gone on to something very much more important. They don't realize that the calling of Jesus was never carpentry, that the calling of Jesus was the transformation of the hearts of the world, and ultimately, death. On that day. That he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he was the Lamb of God. They totally underestimated who he was and had come. They had come, think about it, they had come to rescue him. Have you ever, have you ever tried to rescue Jesus? Have you ever found yourself in a discussion with people and they're, they get a little, uh, you know, they get to some argument that they're saying some bad thing about God and you suddenly feel like you've got to come up with a way to rescue him? He's good. He'd, he'd like to have your testimony. He probably doesn't need your rescue. The other group is the one that I'm most worried about right now. Because we've become too smart, too cynical, 
I'm too proud in this world. We've become too smart for God in this world. The population of America used to be thought of as a kind of a a group of mostly value-connected people because of their faith in Jesus, because of their faith in God. And now it's, it's all over the place. And we've become stronger in our faith in science than we are in our faith in God. And I, I think we're really, and I've told you this a few times recently, but I, I'm going to keep drilling it in until maybe it gets home, right into your living room, that we're refighting the French Revolution. We're trying to set up a God of reason instead of a God of self-sacrifice. And we're trying to put science and reason on the throne where God alone dwells. And our institutions of higher learning are telling our kids over and over and over again, there is no God. There is no God. There is no God. There is no God. Don't be stupid. Only stupid people believe in God. We've gotten too smart to believe in God. We've gotten too cynical. I spent a lot of days this week trying to explain what cynicism is, but I think all of us know it when we see it. Cynicism starts when we come up against a problem we can't resolve, right? And we try to put our efforts forward, and we find that we have nothing. We we just can't make it move. We can't do anything. And then we back away from the problem and we back away from our commitment to it and if it's a problem I can't solve then it's a problem I should degrade and I have to be cynical about it. It's stupid. People who think about it are stupid. They're lame. They're dumb. Why should they? We're getting really cynical. Watch people's posts on Instagram. Watch the memes they put put up. We're getting really cynical. The only illustration that I found that hung with me of it was was a statement from George Lucas. Maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. I've tried it out on a few people this week. George Lucas said, if you see a couple walk away into the sunset at the end of a movie, you you see the couple and you give them the awe. And I realize I get 10 million more dollars at the box office. That's cynical. Cynicism is when you take something of value and you devalue it. When you take the emotions of others and you disregard them. When you make what others are doing nothing. That's cynical. Isn't that pretty accurately what we're doing right now? We've become too smart and too cynical, even in the church. Even in the church. And we've become too proud. You see, in, in the church, we've begun to take on and embrace the choices and the values of the rest of the community culture we live in. And as we've begun to embrace those things, we've become like them. The values of the people of God were never supposed to be the values of the rest of the world. We were always called to live differently. 
That's why Jesus could walk away from security, could stand in the face of government, who could pick a bunch of lamos to be his best buds. Yes, I said lamo, that makes me cynical. But I have to say, that's who we're looking at when we see the scribes standing there in that room with a man who has, has just healed several people. They've seen it. It was there in the synagogue. He walked into the synagogue. He healed a man with a withered hand on Sabbath morning. And you know, what they, you know what they thought about? It was Sabbath. How could he do that? And so they belittled what Jesus did because they knew better than him because he shouldn't do such things on the Sabbath. It's interesting how often we know better than God. He had such a large crowd gathered round him by the lake that he had to get a boat ready so that he didn't just get trampled out into the water and drown. Not that I don't think they could have done that. Not that I think they could have done that. But he healed the people there. One after another, after another, after another. And the power of God went out into the crowd. People's lives were changed. Demons were cast out. Physical healing literally happened. Listen, 21st century Americans, physical healing really happened. People who shouldn't get better get better. Little girls who were doomed by their doctor are pointed in another direction. Real healing takes place in people's lives still today. And now they're standing in Peter's house and Jesus is at it again. He's preaching, he's healing, he's touching people's lives and good things are happening all around them. The cockiness about what they know and what they think and who Jesus is in their estimation turns them to say the words out loud. He's, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. This worries me. This worries me a lot. Be careful about adopting the values of a culture that despises God. Be really careful about adopting a cynical heart because a cynical heart tears away at your relationship with God. And maybe worse, a cynical tongue destroys the relationship with someone else. Tough day. Outside the house, Jesus' family is trying to rescue him because they don't understand who they're dealing with. Inside the house, the scribes are saying, who does he think he is? Who do you all think he is? The only way to put Jesus out of the spotlight was to tell everybody present that he was a fake Messiah. That he was actually a servant of the devil. To put everything, all the chips on black. And say, look, he's demonic. Too smart. Too cynical. Too proud. So what do we do? So far, this tie has been kind of a bummer.
don't forget Jesus' statement in this is that there's an eternal threat for self-denial in Scripture, for love-denial in Scripture. Jesus' statement is really about an eternal condemnation for the person who's thrown their lot in. Simply because self-exaltation dethrones God. If I put my brain ahead of that of God, if I think I'm smarter than Jesus, it has to dethrone Him. God has to be kicked off the throne for me to get on it, and if I think I'm smart enough to know better than God, I've dethroned Him. Self-exaltation, raising up myself, believing in myself so much that I become so prideful that I can't surrender to God. The Bible has no good things to say about pride. If I become so prideful that I can't surrender to God in, in whatever circumstances, if I can't surrender to God's values, to surrender to God's will, surrender to God, who God is, if I can't surrender to God, I've put myself on the throne and I've dethroned God. And right at the beginning of the commands of God is a simple phrase. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And maybe it should also say, especially yourself. Particularly yourself. But I want to flip this thing for a second. I'd like to end with a little hope. Testimony, reinforced faith. Right? You ever hear somebody's testimony and go, oh yeah, that's why I believe in Jesus. Somebody tells you, hey, this cool thing happened in my family that we, we, we shared this morning about the prayers answered in our, church, in our personal family. Testimonies reinforce faith. And giving your testimony reinforces faith. We spend way too much time trying to figure out how to argue someone into their relationship with God or argue against somebody else's fight against God. We spend way too much time trying to memorize the verses so that we can argue our point when the real thing God wants from us is simply a testimony of what He's done for us. We simply stand before someone else and say, how do I know God loves me? Because he's, he's taken care of me. He's relieved me of my fear. He's relieved me of my shame. He's taken me into his, into his arms and followed and walked with me through what I've gone through. I've been through deep, difficult things and God never left me. That's the thing that the world needs to hear from the church, not all the verses that prove your point. It's not a bad thing to know those verses, but don't make that your go-to. The first place is to tell your story. It benefits and blesses others. It also benefits and blesses us. When you retell your story, I was 15 years old when somebody finally convinced me that the whole primordial swamp thing wasn't true. I was 15 years old when a guy with a physics degree and an engineering degree and a theology degree stood across from me and said, hey, it's, it's mathematically impossible. It's 10 to the 52nd to get the first first elements together for the cell to get that first little bit of what would make the first little bit of what would make the first little bit that would make the cell to get that was 10 to the 52nd and in physics 10 to the 50th is considered the impossible line it was two measures past that and i went okay then okay then 
had to figure out, is Jesus there? You have a story like that. Your mom told you when you were in crater wall. Someone told you when you were on your deathbed. Someone told you when you were about to shoot yourself. Someone told you, someone told you, someone told you. You read it somewhere. It touched you. It came through on a television screen. But you gave your heart to Jesus. That's your testimony. That's your moment. That's the thing that put you across the line. That helped you to decide. That testimony reinforces in you what you experienced as it encourages and calls others to the same experience. Testimonies reinforce faith. And they remind us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Thanks. Thanks. Submit. Surrender. Allow. For us believe in the authority of God. Because when I look at your face and I say to God, I am thankful for this person. For who they are in my life. For what they do to my heart. How they bless my home and my family and me personally. When I say to God, thank you for my kids. Thank you for my home. Thank you for and thank you for and thank you for the list the list is nearly immeasurable because if every good gift comes from God then everything is worth thanking him for and it helps me recognize the authority of God on this messy little blue dot at the armpit edge of the universe where sin reigns and death is normal And it helps me to understand that that is not the order of things that God intended. And it helps me to understand that I can turn to Him, I can come to Him, I can bring things to Him, that every sin that man commits can be forgiven, every single one. And that no blasphemy that I state will separate me from God, will stop me from being eternally blessed and forgiven and have my slate wiped clean. But I should be very, very, very careful about how smart I think I am. How cynical I allow myself to be. How proud I am of what I've done. Because If I step across the line and I truly start believing that the things of God are the things of the devil, I'm done. Because if I truly let my heart get that far What's the point of thanksgiving? It resets our understanding of who the authority in the world really is. 
He reminds us that God is God and I am not. It helps us realize all the blessings that we have had. And it turns us Father God, it's always hard to know whether there's been an opportunity here today to, to change a mind. Someone watching at home, someone in the building even. who's been coming to a point in their walk with you that they've wandered off. Or they've been sitting on the sidelines too smart for Jesus. Too proud to ask for forgiveness. And they started to become cynical about the things of God. They started by the culture. The culture that's poisoned by brokenness and sin. Father, I pray for those today. For those in the weeks ahead who who will hear these words. Perhaps hear the voice of your spirit. That will read this passage in John and realize that it's for them. Lord, I pray for your blessings upon each of us that we might be willing to humble ourselves today about the things we're feeling cocky about. I pray that you will help us each to recognize that on our knees is our best posture. That humility is our best experience. And thankfulness is our opportunity to grow our faith. Help us to know that you are God and we are not. Help us to put so much trust in you that we go forward without fear. I pray for those who feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin. Lord, I pray for the recognition of the power of your Holy Spirit speaking now to be clarity that they have not. I pray for those who despise faith. Pray that faith will be on such great display in the people who follow you that despise it though they try, they cannot deny it. And that they cannot deny the life lived under faith is a better life. Help your church to be that light in our messed up world. In Jesus' name.